If you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 13. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you'll see one in the pew uh, in front of you or in the pew underneath you uh, if you're sitting in the front rows here. I love this now. We have people sitting in the front row now. I love this. Um, and you'll want to have that Bible open to Mark 13 this week because we have come to what may be the most controversial chapter in the entire book. Um, at least among Christians. If you're still here kind of checking out Jesus and exploring what you believe about him, you might find the end of the book to be quite controversial, where Jesus walks out of the grave after being dead for three days. Um, That's a huge chapter. I can't wait to get into that one with you on Easter Sunday. I'm really looking forward to that message. But um, for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, that's not a controversial chapter, right? That's the foundation of our hope in life, that Jesus is alive, that we're not wasting our time here, that we're coming to meet with the living God today. That's not the controversial chapter for Christians. But Mark 13, this is where it gets spicy for Christians. Because in this chapter, Jesus is going to tell us about the future. And um, anytime you get to parts of Scripture that tell us about the future, uh, you will tend to find Christians arguing about it because here's the deal. It hasn't happened yet. And um, as we get in, like, can we just admit this? That there are parts of biblical prophecy that are crystal clear. Um, and then there are parts of biblical prophecy that are more mysterious to us on this side of it, right? Yeah, and so um, I think... I don't know why. I have some theories, but you're not here for my theories. Um, I've just observed that for whatever reason, we can tend to get so focused on trying to figure out the mysterious parts, or if we're being maybe, if we could just have some real talk, we get so focused on trying to convince everyone else of our crazy theory about the mysterious parts that we can tend to miss out on the crystal clear parts. And look, all of it matters. All of it's God's word, the mystery, the clear part. Um, But I do think that emphasis is a little backwards. I do think we should spend more time focusing on what's clear because that's the main thing. And then only once we have that straight should we venture into um, charts and debates and theories about the mysterious parts. And so here's my goal this morning. I want to, as much as God will allow, lay before you with all clarity the main point of this chapter. Um, I want to lay before you what is just crystal clear, what Jesus was teaching his disciples then and wants us to know today. Um, because, man, I, I think this is important. I think we need this truth today. And then here's what I'll do. I just want to invite you that if you have questions about some of the mysterious parts, about some of the details, I want to invite you to send that in at fairoaks.org ask. It's all God's word. Would love to engage with you on all of those things, but this would be like a six-hour sermon. And I don't think any of you came here for a six-hour sermon today. Awesome. You guys are getting great at this. So uh, we're going to try to make the main thing the main thing today. Is you have questions, send them in. Check in midweek. We might have a really spicy Q&A episode uh, this week. But for now, we're going to look at the main thing because I believe we need this. And I think you'll see what I mean as we get into it. Are you ready? All right. Mark 13, starting in verse 1, says this. And he, that's Jesus, came out of the temple One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? 
There will not be left one here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, let me just stop right there because if you don't know the context, Jesus might sound like a bit of a downer there. They come out of the temple. One of Jesus' disciples is like, this is a glorious building. Look at how awesome this is. And Jesus is like, bah, it's all going to burn. Um, but there is a context to this. Um, remember, we are on Tuesday of Passion Week. Um, and the prior day, on Monday, less than 24 hours earlier, Jesus had uh, gone into the temple and he saw um, how corrupt it had become. And so he flipped over tables. He said, this isn't right. This has to change. This isn't okay. That was less than 24 hours earlier, kind of a big scene. And um, then what happens the next day, Tuesday, the day that we are still on, is Jesus re-enters the temple and a bunch of religious people get offended at Jesus telling them their life needs to change. And so they start to argue with him and critique him to try to discredit him. And question after question after question, Jesus shows superior wisdom that not only shuts down their arguments, but actually teaches life-giving truth to the watching crowds. And so after a long day of teaching the crowds in the temple, Jesus walks out of the temple, probably to go home to Bethany for the evening to get some much-needed rest. And on his way out, one of the disciples is like, Jesus, the temple's really great, isn't it? Like, do you see how gracious Jesus is to put up with us? And, and, and I say us, some of you are like, I would never say anything that stupid. Um, you might not say it out loud, um, but I think you would think it. Um, I mean, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard something important on Sunday and forgotten it by Monday? Yeah, there it is. It's so easy to look at these guys and judge them and be like, you dummies, if only I was there. If you and I were there, we would have done the same. You might just not have said it out loud because you have better control of your tongue than Peter, whom I assume this probably is. Um, but this disciple, he, he's completely forgot what Jesus said the prior day. And here's, here, now that you've put yourself there, here's what I always want to point out to you as we go through the Gospel of Mark. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't give up on this guy. Jesus doesn't say, are, are you kidding me? Where were you yesterday? Do your ears not hear what's wrong with you? What Jesus does is he lovingly engages him. He, he, he pursues him because here's the thing. Here's what you can't miss. Jesus is gracious. He is patient. And he never gives up on his people. No matter how much you might want to give up on you, Jesus has never wanted to give up on you. This is who our God is. And so you've got this disciple. He puts his foot in his mouth, and Jesus just kind of graciously pulls it out for him. He's like, hey, buddy, um, I don't know if you remember yesterday or not, but yes, this building might look magnificent, but remember what I told you. It's corrupt. It is fruitless. And just like that fruitless fig tree, you remember what happened to that? Well, the same thing's going to happen to the temple. The temple is going to be destroyed. Now, um, I don't, I've thought a lot about how can I make that shocking statement shock you? Because we are really removed from the cultural situation. So give me just a minute. I want to help you feel that because that's a shocking thing Jesus just said. Um, when he's on trial for his life, this is the statement that they will bring back and say, Jesus said the temple would be destroyed. They were very angry about this. So let me just explain the cultural setting so you can feel it. Um, the temple was the center of Jewish life. 
Uh, really, this was how they worshiped God. This is where they would go to be near the presence of God. And so they couldn't imagine life without the temple. This was the center of their entire existence. It, like the highlight of your year would be to go to the temple to worship and to praise God. This was at the center of it all. And um, I was trying to think, I'm like, do we have any modern equivalent of this? I think the closest thing I can think of is for Jesus to say the temple will be destroyed would be like if I said to you the internet will be destroyed. We just had no framework for that. Like, how would I get my groceries? How would I find anything? How would I prove that I'm right in an argument when I know I've got the song lyrics right? Like, we, how would I worship without the internet if you want to have some real talk? How would, how, how would I live my life? I think that's kind of the closest similarity I can see. Something that was at the center of society, they couldn't imagine life without it, and here Jesus is saying that's coming to an end. That's going to be destroyed. In other words, what he's telling these guys is the world as you know it will come to an end. And as I was studying this week, I thought, um, gosh, that feels a little bit on the nose, doesn't it? Um, Anybody feel freaked out by what's going on in the world lately? Anybody wondering, like, um, am I living in the end of the world? Um. See, that's why I say we need this chapter because um, we're not the first to feel that way, to have those concerns. And what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to teach his disciples who are freaked out at the thought about the end of the world, what the end of history is going to be like, and and what do we need to know about it. And so um, this is why I say we got to keep the main thing the main thing because I think maybe more than ever, at least in my lifetime, this is a relevant message. It feels like the world is ending, Jesus. What's the end of the world going to be like? They have all of these questions, and Jesus is going to engage those questions. Let's look at what Jesus wants to say to us about this. Verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise against parents and will have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, 
for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Oh, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and do wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Um, See where I mean this could be a six-hour sermon? Um, Let me summarize that with a single sentence. Jesus says this, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Would you look at your neighbor and say that? It's going to get worse before it gets better. See, we, for the last 200 years or so, um, have lived under this myth that humanity is on this inevitable upward ladder towards progress. Um, Because of advances in science and technology, the idea is that humanity would just get better and better and better uh, until we reach what one philosopher has famously called the end of history. This is what, guys, all the way from Karl Marx to capitalists, they've all kind of held this conception that, man, we humans together are on this upward ladder of progress, and if we just continue history forward, we're going to arrive at utopia. And they might define utopia differently, but that we're all living under the same myth. And and this myth is why I think so many people um, are struggling to understand what's going on in Ukraine right now. Um, Because... Gosh, Russia is behaving in ways that I think, um, I think we feel like we've moved past that. We don't behave like that anymore. We don't do conquests like that. We don't hurt civilians anymore. Humanity has evolved past this. And what Jesus says is that's far too naive. See, these things are jarring to us because they challenge our most basic assumptions about the world. We assume that the world is headed toward progress, that science and technology will get us there. And it's jarring because our baseline assumption is wrong. It's built on a myth. Jesus said 2,000 years ago, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And this isn't even the end. He says this in verse 7. This is just the reality of life in a broken world. That people will use and abuse one another. And yeah, scientific advances can bring us some good things like medicine. They'll also just make uh, warfare more efficient and brutal. 
Like, humanity's not going to solve this one. What Jesus says is wars and rumors of war are a state of life in a broken world where broken humans are present. And, and you might say, golly, that's pessimistic. Sure glad I came to church today. Well, it would be pessimistic if he stopped there. But he doesn't just say it's going to get worse. He says it's going to get worse before it gets better. What he says, look at verse, I believe it's verse 7. Let's, let me check this here. Um, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. What does he say next? Do not be alarmed. What? War is very alarming. Why should we not be alarmed at wars and rumors of wars? Well, if you keep reading, what he says is, these are but the birth pains. These are just the birth pains. Now, um, I've been in the room two times when a child was born. And here's what I can tell you. Um, Women are stronger than men. That's just objectively true. All the moms in the room are like, yeah, we're clapping now. Um, Like, guys, you might be really strong. You might be able to lift a lot more than me. Some of you are like, stronger than you, buddy. Okay, you might lift more than me, but I'll tell you this. I don't think you have the strength to do um, what they do when they say it's time to push. I I don't think you've got that one in you. Um, Like, I... All I did was watch, and I almost passed out. Like, I actually needed medical attention. You can ask Karen. She still has not, like, forgiven me for this. Or we're, we're, we're working it through. That was like, excuse me, you have forgiven me. Great. Okay. She's laughing. This is good news. You should ask her the story. Basically, right before baby comes out, I'm down, and then medical attention goes to me. Anyway, the point is this. <laughs> um... Childbirth is intense. <laughs> Sorry, Callie. I know. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to scare anyone in the room that might be pregnant. Um, l- let me say this. Let's, let's, let the, let's let the congregation encourage us. Moms, it may be intense, but isn't it worth it? Yes. Because at the end, you get this beautiful life. And something that, like, moments ago felt so intense, so painful. Now it's like a distant memory. It's like that's just birth pains. It's, it's overshadowed by this beautiful life that we are now given to where years later you can sit in church and clap about your birth experience. And, and what the Bible says is life's going to be a lot like that. Our world is broken. There's going to be wars and rumors of war. But one day God will intervene in our broken world. And when he does, all of the warfare and hatred and injustice, all of that, it's it's just going to feel like birth pains. Something that was legitimately broken and worth grieving. But it is something that gets outshined by the goodness and grace and love and justice of our God that will wash over this world and make it new. It will only be birth pains. That's the Christian hope. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but it's going to get better. And when it does, it's going to reframe all of this over here. And um, just like birth pains intensify, Jesus is such a great preacher. This is such a great analogy. I wouldn't have thought this one up. I wouldn't have been so bold to use birth pain just because I haven't had that lived experience. But Jesus is the creator he, he gets to use that one, so I'm just quoting Jesus. Um, he says, just like birth pain gets more intense the nearer you get to the moment 
Um, so the birth pains in this world of brokenness and sin will get more intense before that glorious moment when God intervenes in human history. Um, the word Jesus uses for this period of intensification before the intervention of God in history is tribulation. Now, some of you are like, okay, I'm ready to get mad if you say the wrong thing next. Um, some of you are like, what's the controversy with the word tribulation? Let me, let me just let you in on this one here. The big debate is this. Um, is the tribulation Jesus is describing in this passage something that the disciples will experience in the first century? So future to them in Mark 13, but past to us? Or is the tribulation something that hasn't happened yet, that will happen in the future that we are still waiting for? That's the debate. And, and here's what I'll say. Um, in the interest of keeping the main thing the main thing, I'm going to jump to the punchline, but I would totally invite your questions and the Q&A, hit me up. Um, this is all worth thinking about, but I'm going to keep the main thing the main thing today. I'll skip to the punchline. I think they're both right. I, I think that they're both right. Um, because Jesus is obviously talking about something that would affect the disciples. They say, tell us about when the temple is going to be destroyed, which we know from history will happen about 40 years after this event, in 70 AD. Um, Jesus, it, it wouldn't make sense if they say, Jesus, tell us about this cataclysmic event that's coming 40 years later. They don't know it's 40 years later, but it wouldn't make sense if Jesus were just going to jump to something that these guys were never going to experience. He says, this generation, you guys aren't going to pass away before this happens. So at one level, he must be talking to them about something that they would experience. And, and this is where history is so interesting. History is always proving the Bible. This is why I'm a big student of history. Forty years later, the temple is destroyed, just like Jesus said, even though everyone thought it impossible. And in the time leading up to the destruction of the temple, um, it is a time of history um, that even secular historians will look back on that and say, what happened after the death of Jesus that period of time has reshaped the values and the ethics of the entire world. Like something so profound happened during that period. During that period that Jesus is talking about of intensification of tribulation, where the gospel, the good news of Jesus' victory over death, has spread to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the Roman Empire, which was the known world at that time. Something so profound happened during that one particular period of history that I think Jesus is right to talk about it this way. But at the same time, um, Jesus talks about the Son of Man appearing in the sky and an end of evil. And so some people look at that and go, hey, if this is Jesus returning, I want my money back because this, <laughs> this is not the world that he's described elsewhere. And so I think it's right to say there's also a future element and if you're like, how can it be both of those? I guess I'm going into this. Um, like so much prophecy, there's a near and a far fulfillment. And so um, Jesus is speaking about this time of tribulation the disciples would experience leading up to 70 AD. But that experience is really a shadow to tell us about a much greater tribulation that will occur right before the end of history when the Son of Man returns on the clouds of glory, rips open the sky and says, everything's sad, time to come untrue. And so I think they're both right. And so what I want to do in light of that, um, some of you are like typing questions profusely. Good, send them in. Um, what I want to do in light of that, because I've got the mic, if 
They're both right. Um, is what I want to do is look at Jesus' words in light of what the New Testament tells us will ha- happen during this tribulation period, because it was future in Mark 13, but it's past tense by the time you get to the book of Acts. Um, I want to look at uh, Jesus' words in light of what the disciples experience during this period of tribulation to see if we might better understand Jesus' words in this often debated chapter. Um, Jesus warns them about three things. Wars and rumors of war. We've already talked about that one. We've got two more things to talk about. Persecution and false messiahs. Um, So starting in verse 9, Jesus tells these guys, you're going to be delivered over to trials. Um, You're going to um, be dragged. And if you read the book of Acts, you can read about this, where the disciples will be dragged on multiple occasions in front of the Jewish leadership, and they will be beat because of their love for Jesus. They will be told, you stop telling people that Jesus is good and loving and going to fix the world and resurrect it from the dead. You stop speaking about that or we'll have you killed. And, and these disciples that um, over the next several weeks, we're going to see them at their worst. We're going to see these guys in their own flesh are weak cowards that run when their friend's in trouble. These guys, those guys, in the book of Acts, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they say things to men in power like, you do what you got to do to us, but as for us, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have seen something so glorious, we can't shut up about it. Here, here's the point. Jesus' prophecy was true. And, and actually, every one of these guys will be killed for their faith. Um, except for John. They try to boil him in um, oil, uh, which, that didn't work. Like, he, he just didn't die. And so that freaked him out. And so they put him on an island to be exiled in isolation all by himself. These guys were all persecuted for their faith. Jesus' words proved to be true, not just in the persecution side, but the promise that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them and help them in their time of need. These guys were faithful to the end, and Jesus wants you to be faithful to the end as well. And look, I I know that may sound extreme to us because um, in this country, no one's coming after our life for our faith. Um, No one's saying shut up about Jesus or we'll kill you yet. Who knows what the future holds, but that's not our world. So I know this could sound like kind of extreme or kind of um, theoretical, but let me ask you this. Has anyone ever hated you for Jesus' sake? Have you ever had a friend or a family member change their mind about you because of your love for Jesus? Um, I'll I'll never forget the first time I was called a bigot. Um, I was like, me? Um, And and, and this was by someone I would consider a friend. And so I was surprised. I, I didn't even know what to do with it. Like, I'm like, there's bigots out there. And I know we disagree on this, but how you could apply that word? Like, what in the world? Surprising. It's painful. What Jesus says is, don't be surprised when people hate you for my sake. Um, because if you're surprised, you might pop off in your flesh and say things like, I don't know, Miss Tolerance, that doesn't sound very tolerant, which is not going to help anything. Um, or you might say, okay, you're right. I don't want to be a bad guy in the culture, so we'll go with whatever you say. Forget Jesus. That doesn't help anything either. Jesus wants us to remain faithful 
when persecution comes. And so he says, I'm telling you these things in advance. I want you to be aware so that when persecution comes for you, you won't respond in your flesh like a jerk or a coward, but that you would lean into me so that I can empower you for a better response, a faithful response. If you love Jesus, you will be persecuted. And and let me also say this. Um, There's a difference between being persecuted for Jesus' sake and being hated for being a jerk while also happening to be a Christian. Are, are you with me on that one? So like I've talked to some people where they're like, um, they go on Facebook and they pop off and they're like, oh, my family unfriended me. Persecution. I'm like, no, you were just a jerk in being rude. You should go apologize. It's not being persecuted, you're being hated for Jesus' sake. That's being hated for your flesh, which God paid for that sin. He forgives you. They might forgive you too if you confess it, but like, man, let's not, let's not, let's not have a martyr complex here. Um, so I want to recognize there's a difference between those two things, and we shouldn't confuse them, but at the same time, I do think we need to hear what Jesus is saying. That in a culture that is increasingly growing hostile towards the things of Jesus— We need to hear this. Um, If you are hated, it does not necessarily mean that you've got it wrong. In fact, according to Jesus, it might be a fact that you belong to him and love him. If you love Jesus, you will be persecuted for your faith. And here's the thing. The closer we get to the end, the more intense the birth pains get, the more intense this persecution will get. And I don't know, we might see in some of our lifetimes a return to the days of the apostles where it's death or denounce Jesus. And this is the time where we've got to be thinking, do I believe he is real? Because if you haven't thought about it now, you won't be ready then. So Jesus says, you will be hated for my sake. So they've got to be aware of persecution. And they were by God's grace. And I think we can be too. Then number three, he tells them, um, I think this might be the scariest thing. In verse five, he, he tells them it's not just persecution and war on the outside, but there are going to be false messiahs. There are going to be those who come and say, I am he, I am the Messiah. In other words, they're going to say, I can save you. And And Jesus says, don't fall for it. Um, If you look back at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, um, some of you are like, I'm not a historian. I won't do it. Let me tell you then. Um, During the events leading up to the destruction of the temple, what happened is you had a false messiah rise up. You had a guy say, that Jesus, he was all wrong. Don't let the Romans kill you and talk about resurrection. Like, no, 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 no. We've got to take the Holy Land back from the pagans. It's everything these crowds wanted. And so a false Messiah rises up and he whips the Jewish people into a frenzy and they revolt against the Romans. And so in 70 AD, the Romans roll in and they massacre the place. Um, A historian named Josephus from this period of history says a million people died in the city of Jerusalem in that mess. All because the false messiah says, we're going to take the temple back for God. It wasn't true, and those that fell for it were slaughtered. And the temple was wiped out. 
And look, that's just one example. Jesus says that many of these false messiahs will come. That in all of this war, in rumors of war, in all of the persecution, many false messiahs will rise up and offer a false salvation. Have you seen anyone doing that lately? This is going to get real. Have you seen anyone say, I know you're scared, but trust me, I can protect you. You seen anyone make promises you can't keep? They can't keep? Okay, I can tell that's getting too real. Um, now let's, let's go even further. Because we live in a day where our false messiahs aren't even animate anymore. Some of them are human beings, like in the first century. But I think we, science has brought us to a level where we can have inanimate false messiahs. Anyone have one of these? You're all liars. Like, all but three of you are liars. All right? What this does, when life gets hard, it says, pick me up. Scroll me. Look through me. Live through me. Because that's going to make me less stressed out and less anxious and less depressed about my life is to go on and see how everyone else is doing great and the whole world is at war. It doesn't help. Yeah, there are puppies on there. That's true. (laughs) But I would submit possibly on the whole. If you look to this thing and say, save me, my marriage is hard. I need a little distraction here. If you look to this and say, it, pastor's getting too real right now. What's going on in the news? Oh, gosh. If you look to any false messiah, be it a person, be it an object, anything that would say, I can save you other than Jesus, you're going to get burned. Just like all the people in the first century. Because... That's what false messiahs do. They promise to give us what only Jesus can give, but they are not Jesus, and so they can't deliver on that promise. And again, look, the closer and closer we get, this is the birth pains analogy, the closer we get to the end of history, to the glorious intervention of God in this world, the more intense and loud the voices of false messiahs will get. I was talking to someone in my small group recently, and I was like, you know, I, I haven't lived through any world wars this individual has. And I'm just like, is it, is it getting worse? Is it getting louder? And this is one person's experience, but they were saying, yeah, I, I, I think it is. I think it might be getting more intense. Jesus said this would happen. The closer we get to the end, the louder these false messiahs, the allure of these things will be, and the more painful it will be when we fall for them. Is this helping anybody understand more of what's going on in the world right now? Okay. The things we're experiencing feel jarring. I just want to recognize that. If you talk to someone, then they're like, I'm not, I'm not jarred at all by what's going on in the world. I'd ask them, like, have you turned the news on? The things we're experiencing, they do feel jarring. There's nothing wrong with feeling that way. That's an honest response. But according to Jesus, what we're seeing right now is not an aberration. What we're seeing right now is the true nature of the world. That our world is filled with sin and brokenness and tribalism, nationalism, hatred, othering, persecution, strife, all of this. These things haven't gone away over the past couple of hundred years. They've been underneath the surface. They've been expressing themselves in other ways. And here they are rearing their ugly head right now. And as dark as that sounds, this, I would submit to you, is the beginning of true hope. 
Um, Because until you realize the busted condition of our world, you are going to be surprised when these things come. You are going to look to false messiahs to deliver you when these things flare up because you won't have expected them. And so you'll gut react in your flesh and you'll be like, this is crazy. Maybe this can save me. And now you're doubly in a world of hurt. And Jesus says, I'm telling you these things in advance so that you won't do that. I want you to beware. He says that again and again and again, to be alert, to be on guard. I want you to be aware that these things are coming so that you wouldn't give yourself to false messiahs. Because here's the good news. There is a real messiah in the room. And the messiah, the real one, Jesus, he does his best work in the dark. So darkness, he's not afraid of it. He doesn't have to pretend the world isn't as busted as it is. And in fact, when we can see how busted the world is, that's where we can see the strength of the true Messiah. Because, see, it's going to be, we're going to see this over the next couple of chapters, it'll be in the darkness of night. In an illegal, unjust trial, Jesus will be put on trial for his life. And in the darkness of lies and mistruth, Jesus will be delivered over to death on one of the darkest instruments of execution the world has ever invented. And just when his enemies think they have won, just when Satan and the powers of darkness and the religious elite and the Roman Empire, just when they're all having a big party and thinking, we finally got one over on Jesus. In the darkest of moments, when in the middle of the day the sky literally goes dark, Jesus defeats our sin and our shame and overcomes our darkness on the cross. And he defeats our sin and every claim the powers of darkness would have over us so that like he walked out of the tomb three days later, broken sinners like you and me who are prone to trusting false messiahs, who because of that will bring more brokenness into the world and contribute to these things, broken sinners like us could find new life on the other side of death. And so when Jesus says in verse 24 that after this period of tribulation, that he's going to tear open the sky and bring his kingdom of love and justice to wash over this world, this broken world to make it new. We believe him, right? Because this is what our God does. He loves to bring life from death. And just when things look their darkest, that's where our God's always doing his greatest work, isn't it? Jesus is coming back, church. That's the climax of this chapter. When the tribulation is over, the Son of Man will descend on the clouds, and it's going to be a glorious moment. Jesus is coming back, and the more intense the birth pains of wars and rumors of war and persecution and the allure of false messiahs, the more intense those things get, the closer we are to that day. And so look, I know it's jarring right now, but according to Mark 13, all of this madness around us means we're one day closer to the day. That is the Christian hope. It gets worse before it gets better, but it's going to get better. And we are now one day closer to the day when he's going to tear open the sky and say, no more, all things new. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. And that is our hope. And look, there's so much more that we can say about this chapter, but I just want to ask you this. What are you going to do with that simple truth? 
What are you going to do with Jesus' promise that it will get worse before it gets better, but it will get better? What are you going to do with that? Because we, we say this here. We, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. Jesus told us this for a reason. This isn't meant to be theory that we file away. This is meant to impact our lives, particularly as we live in a dark and chaotic day. So what are you going to, that's the question you've got to ask with the remainder of time and service as we respond to the word. And as you prepare to do that, I just want to read for you what Jesus wants you to do with this truth. Some of you notice I didn't finish the chapter. Let's finish it out and let Jesus tell us what to do with this. Verse 32, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So when you see a book that says 88 reasons, Jesus is coming back in 1988, don't buy it. Jesus says no one knows. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. That means all. All. That means us today. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus says, I didn't give you this teaching so you could argue about the timing. I gave you this teaching so you could live awake and ready for the day. Because the day is coming. I am coming back. And what he says is, you I want you to live awake to this hope. I want you to stay awake. I want you to stay ready because here's the reality. Darkness, brokenness in the world makes it so easy to give up hope and say, well, it's been 2,000 years. I I don't know, Jesus. Like, I think you're running a little late. And what Jesus says is, you don't worry the timing. I'll be God, you be human. I'll worry about the timing. You worry about trusting me. You worry about me coming back. Did I walk out of the tomb once? Am I worth trusting on this one? What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What does that mean? It, I think it means to live increasingly in light of the truth of the second coming of Christ. To have the truth of Jesus' return. Um, be more real to you than what you see in the newspaper. If you believe that he is coming back, if you believe Jesus isn't a liar, if you believe Jesus is alive and good and will fulfill this promise just like he has every other one, then to live awake means to give, to let that give shape to your life today because that's the only way you won't be crushed by the darkness of this world. That's the only way that you will endure persecution and remain faithful Because if you don't actually believe he's coming back or you forget or if you grow sleepy to that truth, it's going to be easy to look to false messiahs. It's going to be easy to be depressed and overwhelmed by the state of the world. But what Jesus says is, take heart, I have overcome the world. And I'm coming back. And I'm telling you this in advance so that you can live into that hope. And, And I don't know where you need to hear that this morning, but I believe that we all 
need to wake up to that hope a little bit more this morning. He doesn't say get awake. He says stay awake. It's an ongoing activity. And so what I want to do is I want to pray for us and ask that the Holy Spirit he promised would come and wake us up where we need it this morning. That we would have more confidence in the words of Christ than in the headlines of the papers. And that somehow that confidence would cause us to live a life of hope that makes the people around us go, we're not sure about your Jesus, but you seem alive and free in a day I can't understand. Would you tell me about that Jesus? Is that what you want? Would you like that? That's what I want. So I'm going to pray for me and for those of you. I'll pray for all of us. And then we're going to take some time to respond and let the Holy Spirit do his thing. Father, I thank you for your grace towards us. I thank you that Though we are weak in our flesh, though we are broken and prone to trusting false messiahs, your goodness and your love and your grace overcomes our weakness. That you sent your son to save us from our sin. That there's no darkness that can keep us from you this morning. And so because I know you love us in Christ, I ask that you would pour out your spirit in fresh measure this morning. Would you send your Holy Spirit to to like these guys? Live awake to this hope wherever we need it, wherever we feel just discouraged about the world, wherever we feel just overwhelmed by persecution, wherever we are giving our allegiance to lesser false messiahs, would you, Holy Spirit, get our eyes up onto Jesus and on the world that you have coming for us and that grounded in that hope, we might walk out of here a little more confident in you, a little freer in you, and a little bit more alive in a very difficult day. And would you shine your light brightly through us? We love you. We can't do this on our own. And so we ask that you would graciously do these things in us and through us for your beautiful name. Amen.